Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew we have a brand new Christian Heritage Series book out now from Samuel Rutherford called Lex Rex. A quote from Douglas Wilson's introduction, Rutherford was a practical and pastoral theologian who could soar to great heights of glorious consolation. But he was also a bare-knuckle brawler who was clearly able to hold his own in the theological bar fight that was the 17th century. Get Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford today at canonpress.com. Good morning, good afternoon, or good night, whatever it is. Welcome to Plodcast. This is episode 154. Thanks for joining us. Let's have a good time, shall we? I want to begin by talking about John MacArthur's stance in uh, worshiping, contrary to the order of the governor of California, Governor Newsom. What basically happened was John MacArthur has uh, taught for a number of years, basically, that as scripture teaches, that we should honor the existing authorities and submit to them and so on, which is the teaching in 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13. And when the uh, coronavirus hit, uh, the initial response at Grace Community was to comply. All right, this, is, uh, this is not our lane. This is the civil authorities' lane, and, and so we will comply. But as time went on, the situation became more and more clear. As I watched John MacArthur's statement on it, he um, demonstrated that the lockdown order or the prohibition of Christian worship or the prohibition of of churches gathering uh, as churches was being uh, radically misapplied or misapplied in such a way as to indicate that churches were being singled out. In in other words, um, liquor stores are, are open uh, pot shops in California are essential services. They're open. Abortion clinics are open and so on. But churches, no, you can't have churches. Uh, this was also, um, I don't remember that he mentioned this, but this uh, particular hypocrisy was highlighted with the acceptance of Black Lives Matter protests, protests and riots and, um, and so on. Churches are a no-go. Uh, these protests that favor the left, uh, they're fine. And so it became obvious to the elders at Grace Community and to John MacArthur that this whole thing was a charade. If there was a major city fire, for example, and was burning all the shops and the movie theaters and the church and every, you know, up and down the street, and the fire department is clearing the block and they, they're just getting everybody out of there, they're, they're responding to an emergency that does not discriminate against Christians particularly, and they're just simply doing their job. And MacArthur's stance was, while they were doing their job, or while we didn't know that they weren't, uh, we were willing to comply. But when it became obvious that they've got their thumb on the scale, this is not an equal weights and measures thing. Um, This is a very clear example of overreach he decided it was time to draw the line. And so Grace Community is now worshiping uh, John MacArthur's preaching. 
and uh, they've retained a top legal team to defend themselves if California brings charges or if they try to fine John MacArthur uh, so much a day or in a punitive way or anything like that. If they do, then there's going to be a court fight and so on. So some Christians have said, well, why didn't you do this from the beginning? Well, different Christians from different theological traditions and backgrounds can easily have different thresholds for when you identify that they're not really playing straight with us. Some people who have uh, a highly refined theology of resistance can detect tyranny very early on, and others might not be able to identify it quite as quickly. But once it's identified and they respond accordingly, then uh, they should have our prayers and support. So in this, I think all Christians should be lifting up Grace Community and John MacArthur in the work that they're doing and the stand that they're taking, whether or not you would have done it in exactly the order they did it or according to the same timetable that they did it. There is no question, but that John MacArthur is putting everything on the line. He's just saying, okay, come and get me. It's time for us to have a face-off. It's time for us to, to deal with this. I think that if the initial stand that John MacArthur took was a galvanizing uh, thing because all across evangelicalism, uh, all across evangelical dumb, rather, there are many leaders who are revealing that they don't really, they either don't know what to do or they do know what to do and it's the wrong thing. And in this, John MacArthur has shown real leader, leadership, and I think that we ought to be doing everything we can to support him in this. So we will see how the court case turns out if something is done, and pray that it goes well. If the government of California is foolish enough to really crack down on him and, <laughs> and take John MacArthur off to, to jail, then the fat would be in the fire. Continuing with podcast episode 154. For this week's session in hamartiology, remember we're studying sin, all the different Greek words in the New Testament for sin. Uh, in this week's session, I'm going to be considering a small cluster of related words. The first is achreos, achreos, A-C-H-R-E-I-O-S, achreos, and is the word that means unprofitable, unprofitable. At the conclusion of the parable of the talents, the Lord has this to say about the servant who lived dangerously by playing it safe. And we should meditate on that phrase, live dangerously by playing it safe. He came to a bad end, and he came to a bad end by playing it safe. Matthew 25, verse 30. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the unprofitable servant, the one who didn't want to run afoul of the hard master, uh, winds up being thrown into the outer darkness at the order of the hard master. This servant was reckoned as unprofitable because he literally made no profit with the money that had been entrusted to him. So he was given talent, which he buried, and then returned to his master because he knew that his master was a hard master. And notice that this is a sin of omission. There are two types of sins, sins of commission, where you commit adultery when you shouldn't, or steal when you shouldn't, or uh, blaspheme when you shouldn't. That's a sin of commission. But there are sins of omission as well. And refusing to turn a profit 
on the resources that God has given you is one such sin of omission. And Jesus tags this uh, servant as an unprofitable servant, and he is consigned to the outer darkness uh, because of that. On another occasion, the Lord told his disciples that if somebody sinned against them seven times in one day and apologized seven times, uh, then the disciples were to do so. They were to forgive that person. The disciples then told the Lord to increase their faith, and then they would be able to do what he said. In other words, they tried to evade responsibility. Jesus told them to do a hard thing, and they basically said, uh, well, increase our faith, and then we'll think about doing it. If they didn't uh, do what he said, then that must have been because God hadn't given them the strength. And then Jesus told a story about how, to, how a servant shouldn't think that way, Luke 17.10. So likewise ye, when ye have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. So uh, this is a righteous servant here, unlike the one in the parable. This is a righteous servant, but he doesn't think of himself that way. He doesn't stand on his uh, dignity. He doesn't stand on his merits. Uh, God says to the faithful servant, when, when we arrive in glory, uh, what God says to us is, well done, good and faithful servant. But what we are supposed to say is that we were actually unprofitable, and to the extent that we did what we were told, we were only doing what we were told, and isn't that what a servant is supposed to do? So, this servant is a righteous servant, but he's considering himself a worthless or an unprofitable servant. He talks about himself that way. The verb form of this is akreao, akreao, become unprofitable, become unprofitable. This is the word that Paul uses to describe the human race descending into the abyss of sin. Uh, this is in Romans 3.12. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There it is. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. We are, of course, conceived in sin, born in sin. We are uh, a young baby is a little bundle of sin, as my father puts it. The only reason that that child is not sinning is because he lacks the intelligence and the requisite muscle strength. As soon as he gets those, he's going to start sinning. A baby in a cradle is not a walker in that he's not walked yet, but he belongs to a race of walkers, and it's in his nature to walk. Uh, he, he's a talker, even though he hasn't said any words yet. He belongs to a race of talkers, and uh, it's in his nature to talk. It's the same way with sin. He belongs to a race of sinners, and it's in his nature to sin. So once they start acquiring the uh, wherewithal to sin, they, they do so. So everybody uh, goes out of the way, and everybody becomes unprofitable. The next form is akrestos, akrestos, and is the occasion of a Pauline pun. The name Onesimus means useful or beneficial. But Onesimus had apparently made off with the family silver, and so after Paul had led him to Christ, he returned him to Philemon with these words, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. In other words, um, Onesimus was useful. His name meant useful. So, hey, useful, come here. Um, and then uh, Paul puns on, on this, basically saying, Onesimus at one point was unprofitable for you. Elsewhere in the letter, Paul says, uh, basically, if there's anything to be squared up, uh, I'll, I, Paul, will take care of it, indicating that Onesimus probably wronged Philemon in some way. 
but useful uh, became useless and is now useful again, even though there are different words involved, uh, the punning goes on. That's Philemon, uh, verse 10 and 11. All right, so for the book review um, segment of Plodcast 154, I want to talk obliquely about a book by two gentlemen named Strauss and Howe, and this book is um, called The Fourth Turning. And so I've got to do a little full disclosure uh, here. Someone, uh, someone in our congregation gave me the book many years ago, a long time ago, probably 15 or 20 years ago, maybe. It was quite a while ago. And uh, I started it and got bogged down for some reason. And then recently, uh, it showed up on my radar again. And so I got it and started it again and then discontinued it again. But there's some intriguing things about it. So I, I did a few... Well, I have to explain it. Uh, this book is called The Fourth Turning, and the book is basically uh, purports to be a, a way of understanding history, how history works. And these gentlemen basically have an approach or a theory that says uh, cultures or civilizations or cultures uh, or, or nations basically have a life cycle, uh, lifespan, um, just like individual people do. And I read something similar many, many years ago. There's a, a booklet by Sir John Glubb uh, called uh, The Fate of Empires. His thesis was empires or cultures or nations basically have a lifespan of around 200 years, uh, just as uh, a human lifespan is like 70 to 80 years. What Strauss and Howe theorize is that, that there are basically four turnings in this cycle, and they're based off of a lengthy human life. And oftentimes the first turning is um, the fourth turning of uh, one uh, cycle is the first of the next. But let's say you start American history as uh, the war for independence as the first turning. When there's this great crisis, there's a great crisis and a transformation and a new order that comes to pass at each turning. So there's some sort of convulsion, some sort of thing, and then there's a, a transformation. So the first turning is roughly the uh, the American War for Independence. The second turning would be the Civil War. The third turning would be the Great Depression, World War II. And then the fourth turning would be now. So I got the book down, started to read it again, and there's some really fascinating things in it. I think the gentlemen are, uh, involved are onto something. At the same time, it's mingled in with um, things that I would consider hooey or things that I just found off-putting. I I didn't want to read, didn't want to wade through it. So I got got one of these um, summary books. You know, they're kind of books that busy executives read on airplanes so they don't have to read the book. I got a summary, a detailed summary of this uh, book, The Fourth Turning, and I I read through it. And Steve Bannon, who who worked briefly for President Trump at the beginning of his first term, was really taken with this book and, and, um, thought it explained a lot of things. Well, when I read the summary, uh, when I read the summary of this book, the thing that is striking about it, this book was published, I think, in 97, in the late 90s. And in 1997, they said, basically, the climax of the fourth turning would be in the year 2020, and the turning would be done by roughly 2026. And one of the possible culprits in the turning, they said, was a new virus. (laughs) So, I okay. Even if there's some 
stuff that I think is a little fruity. There may be something. There may be something there. It is quite true that there was a transformation, a cultural shift, convulsion, and transformation at the War for Independence. It's quite true that there was uh, a cultural shift and transformation at the war between the states. And it's quite true that America emerged from the Second World War in a transformed state. These are, they were not just dates that you mark. There was a, a cultural shift that accompanied each uh, one of these things. And if the, if the thesis holds up, we're in the middle of one now. So I, I watched some YouTube videos of the author talking about you know, the, one of the authors currently talking about what's going on with uh, in the light of the book, and there's some there's some uh, really interesting things. So I'll I'll just say I can commend uh, the thesis of the book generally, but with a caveat emptor, buyer beware sort of um, uh, approach to it. The fourth turning by Strauss and Howe. Mm-hmm. 